This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, November 15th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, remembering a Telluride icon, boosters for all, gondola planning glides forward, and a mountain weather forecast. But first, the Telluride Ski Resort announced on Monday it is pushing the opening date for the 2021-2022 ski season back to December 3rd. Tune in to Off the Record at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, November 16th to hear more from Scott Pittenger, Telski Director of Mountain Operations, about the decision. William Bill Keyes was passionate. He was driven, a mentor, bold, a positive life force. Keyes was big timber. Unfortunately, the big timber falls. And Bill was big timber. He, he cast a big shadow wherever he was in a positive way. That's Jerry Roberts, a friend of Keyes. You know, we're, we're going to miss that. Uh, Bill was just a, a fun-loving, great guy that loved his family and loved his extended family just as much. Bill Keyes passed away, holding his wife's hand on November 9th after a fight with cancer. He was 79 years old. Keyes was born on December 22, 1941, in Los Angeles. He spent his childhood in Southern California, but after a winter bussing tables and bartending in Aspen, he quickly fell in love with the mountains. Keyes met the non-geological love of his life, Susan, and they soon packed up their lives in a van, and along with Susan's two children, headed east in 1972. On the way to Aspen, Keyes and Susan stopped in Telluride and realized this was the place to be. It was in Telluride Keyes quickly became an integral member of the community, including co-founding the Mountain Film Festival in 1979. Jerry Roberts met Keyes in those early years. Bill and I were like brothers. We, we loved each other and we hated each other, but uh, it, it was mostly good. We'd... we'd uh, fight and then we'd kiss and make up and have a good time. A lot of that good time was spent skiing. He and I used to go out uh, when it was uh, less than beautiful and spend a lot of time skiing uh, some powder. And, and, and Bill was just one of the most enthusiastic people that I knew. Uh, the worse the weather was, the, the happier he was. It was almost manic. He was just, uh, you know, hooting and hollering and saying, God, isn't this great? You know, do we deserve it this, this good? Um, you know, there wasn't a bad day for Bill. He was just a man of adventure, whether it was walking down the street in Telluride or on his couch um, watching a football game and drinking a beer with a buddy or, or, or out, uh, you know, in the mountains or the deserts or the, the rivers. He just uh, probably was the most enthusiastic person I knew. His love and passion for the outdoors was central to many who knew him. Bill was the grandfather of Oprah climbing. Climbing was how Josh Boroff met him. When I started climbing with him, he was in his 50s. I think the last route we did together, he was 62 or 3, I think. And his shoulders were starting to fail him. But, man, he sure did still get on lead and just was so solid. It was so impressive to watch. For Tor Anderson, the name Bill Keys preceded the man. Bill Keys' name was on so many first ascents uh, on the Ofer Wall and, you know, a few other places around that, of course, I knew who knew his name before I knew who he was. Anderson would go on to spend more hiking days with Keys than climbing, but he always looked up to him as a mentor for climbing and adventuring. And also for how to, 
I don't know, be respectful when, when I first moved to town or first started getting to know him of the old school ethic and the old school kind of mindset, which he certainly embodied, which was go for a big adventure, you know, and in terms of climbing, that meant you didn't come from the top and come down to inspect what you were going to go up. You went from the bottom up and you took it as it came. While Keyes was an excellent climber and an avid outdoorsman, he also loved bringing people into his sunlight. Here's Boroff. When we started climbing together, I was 24. I, I was a fraction as good a rock climber as he was, but I was into it. I was trying hard, and he really did want to include all of us youngsters in the Ofer Wall and what was going on out there. But that love didn't end at the Ofer Wall. It extended into his whole life. He had a lot of love, and if you were his friend, he treated you like gold. He was a true lover, true lover of his family, of his friends, and he loved life. Keyes' friend, Judy Cohen. That love was apparent towards his friends, children, and grandchildren, but Cohen notes it stood out in the way he adored his wife, Susan. You know, we all worshipped was their their relationship and their all the struggles they went through and how they persevered, and they really showed us what it means to be in a relationship in, you know, this kind of modern world and to be really committed and and to share your love with someone for your life, for your whole life. Keyes' joy and passion for life went everywhere he did. Roberts again. Bill had the biggest smile of just about anybody I knew, and his, his laugh ah, 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 was great. You could hear him across town. It just You knew Bill Keyes was around by his laugh because he was always laughing about something, you know. For those who knew Keyes, finding that exuberance in the wilderness is the best way to remember him. You know, you climb his roots. The best way to know Bill and what kind of rock climber he was, it's all right there on the wall. Um, go, do his, go, go do his climbs and, and uh, you get a very good sense of, of what he was about and just how um, sure of himself he was as a person and as a climber. Um, you know, it's, it's all right there in his rock climbs. He wanted people to go outside and feel how, what it feels like to be outside and to be in the wilderness and to just spend your life enjoying the mountains. Keyes is survived by his wife, Susan, his children, Scott, Blake, and Lorraine, his grandchildren, Mira, Alex, Zach, Marius, Cricket, and Ozzy. Details about a celebration of life for Bill Keyes will be shared when available. Anyone and everyone over the age of 18 in Colorado should be getting a COVID booster shot. That's according to Governor Jared Polis. Last week, Polis declared the state of Colorado as high risk for exposure or transmission of COVID-19. He also signed an executive order to expand booster shot eligibility. Now, anyone 18 years or older who received the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine at least six months ago is eligible. And anyone 18 years or older who received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine at least two months ago is eligible. San Miguel County Public Health has a number of vaccine and booster clinics coming up in the next few weeks. There is a pediatric Pfizer clinic in Telluride on Tuesday, November 16th, and another in Norwood on Thursday, November 18th. There will also be a general Pfizer and Moderna clinic in Norwood on the 18th. 
Telluride will have a Moderna clinic on Friday, November 19th. The state health COVID vaccine bus will be back in San Miguel the first week of December. The bus will have Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and flu shots. To register for a vaccine, go to sanmiguelcountyco.gov slash coronavirus. While Governor Polis is expanding eligibility for the vaccine, the state is also cracking down on those who choose not to get vaccinated. Starting Friday, people who attend some indoor concerts and other large gatherings will have to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 or test negative for the virus. Governor Polis talked about the need for statewide action during an interview with CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday. It comes as the state's hospital capacity continues to dwindle. If you're unvaccinated, this is the most dangerous time for you, no matter where you live in the country or in the world, because of the highly contagious nature of the Delta variant. The most important thing you can do is get vaccinated. The mandate applies to indoor gatherings of more than 500 people in Arapahoe, Adams, Boulder, Jefferson, Denver and Broomfield counties. Religious gatherings and events where everyone is seated do not fall under the new mandate. The testing option goes away starting in December, meaning anyone wanting to attend events will have to show proof that they are vaccinated through December 31st. Planes, trains, and automobiles. In San Miguel County, the gondola is an important add to that list of transportation methods. The gondola between Telluride and Mountain Village has been running for decades, but stakeholders in the region are trying to determine what will happen post-2027, when the current operating agreement runs out. I think there's a perception that, well, it's 2027, that's a long ways off. Having been in the process this long, it almost feels like that's not enough time. That's Patrick Barry, a Mountain Village town council member and member of the multi-jurisdictional gondola subcommittee. Last week, the gondola planning process hit a large milestone, the first, of many, leadership committee meetings. The leadership committee includes both Telluride and Mountain Village town councils, the San Miguel Board of County Commissioners, the San Miguel Authority for Regional Transportation, the Telluride Mountain Village Owners Association, and the Telluride Ski and Golf Resort. To start the meeting, TMVOA President Anton Benitez reiterates some of the basics for understanding the gondola system. Our gondola system has more than 127,000 hours in operation since it was installed in 1996. Um, That's more than any comparable system in North America. Uh, We move um, about, we do about 3 million trips. We hit that milestone in 2019. While those numbers are impressive, it's not all rosy. Miles Graham is a consultant with GBSM, a firm assisting with the gondola planning process. We know now that the current system, there are days where it gets, um, you know, quite crowded, it's at capacity and the lines get get long and, and that can decrease the rider experience and and uh, at, if they're so long, create a situation where, where people start, you know, to get back in the car, look for other options. So we want to be looking at this process as an opportunity to provide a stable planning foundation for the connected systems of the town of Telluride and Mountain Village, the ski resort, you know, and how traffic and parking intersects with that. Based on years of work from the gondola subcommittee, there are three realistic options moving forward with gondola improvements. Heinz Neusser with Outdoor Engineers, another firm helping with the planning process, lays out the possibilities. Option one actually is, it's not not 
doing anything, but it's in its minimum um, in its minimum scope. It's simply doing the basic maintenance and the system repairs as they come up. So it's it's actually what you are doing right now. But he notes option one isn't necessarily the most viable option for the long term. Newser notes as benefits, option one will cost the least amount of money and require the smallest downtime for construction. But maintenance costs will inevitably go up, and there's no room to increase capacity or upgrades to meet Americans with Disability Act requirements. So option two we are we are we are looking at is um, doing a major upgrade, but keeping the station locations and and their design. For option two, there are differences between if the jurisdictions go for the minimal or maximum. The maximum scope of this major upgrade is that you do the major upgrade of the existing system so that that the core parts still remain the same, but you do some adaptions of the station uh, size, and that has an impact on the capacity because if if you... just change the machinery and the stations stay the same size, you, you can't really increase capacity um, exceeding a certain extent. And then there's option three, a new system overhaul. So you really uh, do a new system with all the, all the, the, uh, the flexibility you have on the market right now. And even there, there is a minimum scope where we say, well, keep the, the, the station locations and, and then there is a maximum scope where you really say, okay, we, we can even raise and rebuild the stations. Each option has its pros and cons when it comes to what Nusser calls value drivers. That's system flexibility, cost, passenger flow, passenger satisfaction, environmental impact, and downtime for construction. Nusser uses the concept of a stoplight to compare. Option one is mostly red. Not great for system flexibility, passenger flow or satisfaction. Capital costs are yellow, but operating costs are red. The only green is the downtime required. Option two is a mix of green and yellow. There's more flexibility in the system, and passengers are projected to have more rider satisfaction and flow, but major upgrades do lean into yellow and red when it comes to capital costs and downtime required to change the system. Finally, option three. On all value drivers, it's green, except for two important factors, cost and downtime. According to planners, a total overhaul of the system could take the gondola out of commission for at least a season. And while Nusser notes any of the options will cost at least millions, gondola subcommittee member Todd Brown adds a jump from option two to three is no small penny. We don't have construction numbers and downtime for these various options that has to be developed in a lot more detail into it. But we do know at this point that between the low end of option two and the high end of option three, we're talking tens of millions of dollars. So it's a significant challenge to all of us in the region to uh, come up with the appropriate solution and then find the appropriate funding. The list of questions and potential concerns for the future of the gondola is likely to grow. And there's a key stakeholder Graham says planners still need to hear from. We want to know what does the community think of the current system? What do they love about it? 
where do they see opportunities? Where do they see challenges? And what would they change and prioritize for a future system? Community members can find up-to-date planning information at OurGondola.org and provide feedback by emailing OurGondola at gmail.com. But it's also not all work. The gondola will be celebrating its 25th anniversary later this year, with a celebration of the milestone on January 8th. The Telluride Regional Medical Center is looking to hire a new and third interim CEO after former CEO Karen Winkleman stepped down earlier this year. Dan Caton and Robert Thorne each stepped in as interim for a time. However, according to Richard Betts, president of the Medical Center Board, Thorne tendered his resignation last week. Uh, This is such an important position at this point with us having to adopt next year's budget and some other staffing things we 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 really wanted to make sure we moved as quickly as possible with that at a special board meeting last week bet suggested the board hire tim cashman as the new interim ceo he was the former finance director at both the gunnison hospital and and before and he wound up his career as the finance director in Estes Park at the medical center there in Estes Park. He had just retired in July, but decided he wanted to do some um, uh, interim work and that this would be his first time at that. And he wanted to get back into the field on an interim basis. Dr. Diana Colliker, Director of Emergency Services at the Med Center, notes in her conversation with Cashman, she was open and honest, and he didn't run away scared. We showed him some of our warts. Um, we shared some things uh, because we all know we've, we've got some challenges right now. We have some leftover challenges from the pandemic. We have some staffing issues. We, I mean, we have got some challenges as an organization. And Jennifer and I felt like we needed to let him know what he was getting himself into potentially. And he did not, uh, he, he paused. I, w- I will say it's not like he blew it off, yeah. but he did not, um, he didn't cower. Um, and um, I think that's important. I, I you know, <laughs> I want somebody who's going to walk along with me and, and tackle all this stuff. Jennifer Oliver Lee, director of finance and controller for the Med Center, agrees, noting he has an understanding of the place and community he'd be working with. I don't think he's going to get flustered. Like, I think he's going to really be down in the dirty and in the weeds with us. He wants to be here. He wants to work, like, like just get into the details and work alongside us. Like, I felt like his level of commitment really was expressed. Um, And he also talked a lot about how he valued relationships, uh, which I thought was good. And we reiterated how important relationships are to us in the medical center as in the community um, and the kind of community that we are of Telluride and Telluride Regional Medical Center. And I feel like he, that resonated, he understood that, like that was, that clicked. While officials appeared in general support of Cashman's hiring at the meeting, the board of directors have not yet made a decision. According to medical center officials, the hiring process for an interim CEO is still ongoing. The Telluride Marshals Department will be tagging abandoned bicycles on Gus's Plaza at Oak Street Gondola Station this week for removal on Thursday, November 19th. All bicycles must be claimed no later than 9.30 a.m. on November 18th, 
or they will be impounded, disposed of, or sold at auction. Officials remind residents the area is not a place for long-term bicycle parking or storage. An investigation into a deadly officer-involved shooting in Gunnison last Thursday continues. Led by the 7th Judicial District, critical and... An investigation into a deadly officer-involved shooting in Gunnison last Thursday continues, led by the 7th Judicial District Critical Incident Investigative Team. According to a press release, Gunnison police responded to a call about a person sleeping in a car. The vehicle came back as stolen, and when police approached the vehicle, the man inside drove into several vehicles, including police cruisers. An officer was reportedly dragged by the vehicle. Police shot at the vehicle, killing the man inside. He has been identified as Jerry Donald Cooper, age 44, of Lakewood, Colorado. One Gunnison police officer was treated at the hospital and released. The officers involved, per department policy, have been placed on administrative leave. The Colorado Supreme Court has approved new maps of legislative districts that will affect state house races for the next decade. KOTO Scott Franz has more. The new boundaries appear to give Democrats an edge in next year's elections to determine which party controls the legislative agenda at the Capitol. But things could get interesting in the state Senate, where Republicans are projected to have their best chance at regaining power. There will be 11 competitive districts in that chamber, where Democrats currently hold a five-seat advantage. A district in southwest Colorado, and one including Loveland and Estes Park, are projected to be battlegrounds. The Supreme Court's approval of the maps concludes a redistricting process that happens once a decade around the census. This was the first time an independent commission drew the boundaries instead of state lawmakers. There were legal challenges to the process, but the court rejected them. I'm Scott Franz. For a lot of people in and around Telluride, one of the top issues on their minds is housing. And it's not just an issue for San Miguel County. KOTO has partnered with multiple stations in the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition to report a series of stories looking at economic mobility through housing to understand how the challenge and possible solutions are playing out across the region. Today, we're heading to the desert. When a trailer park housing low-income residents went up for sale in downtown Moab, local elected officials worried it would get bulldozed for a new hotel. So the city bought it. KZMU's Molly Marcello reports on Moab's ongoing plans to safeguard workforce housing and develop affordable apartments on the site. Rosa Gonzalez is describing her ideal home. Rosa is not her real name. She asked us to change it for the story. But her dreams of a three-bedroom apartment for her and her two teenage sons, those are real. My kids live comfortably, but they do say that they would like to have a nicer apartment, similar to the way other kids live. Right now, we live pretty tightly. They're in a one-bedroom trailer. Her 16-year-old sleeps in the living room, her 19-year-old in the kitchen. He has a sofa bed there, and I have my little room that gets wet. Rosa explains that when it rains, water leaks right down onto her bed. Her prefabricated trailer is well over 50 years old. Maintenance crews have been troubleshooting to fix it. 
Rosa and her 85 neighbors who make up Moab's Walnut Lane neighborhood are familiar with leaks and other issues with their aging trailers. I have heard that they have plans to build some apartments for people who live in Walnut Lane so we can move into more updated and better housing. We want something better. Rosa's landlord is Moab City. And they do have plans to bring something better to this community, many of whom make up the backbone of the tourism industry here. Rosa works cleaning hotel rooms. Her neighbors work in restaurants and other service industry jobs. Like her, many are Spanish-speaking immigrants. I really do want people to understand that we value our workforce community, that we value people that are cleaning the rooms and that are serving our meals. And that Moab's mayor pro tem, Tani Knutson-Boyd. She's speaking to me in a busy downtown area, not far from Walnut Lane. From here, we can see a luxury hotel whose construction displaced residents from a different trailer park several years ago. When the Walnut Lane property was about to go on the open market, Knutson Boyd said she worried a hotelier would scrape the trailers that were there and the people that were living there would find themselves without a home. Moab City Council purchased the trailer park for $1.8 million, taking a step to safeguard housing for the local workforce. They want to develop long-term affordable housing at the site and not displace any current residents in the process. I mean, it's obviously been a challenge to figure out how and what that looks like. Caitlin Myers. She's the senior projects manager for Moab City. Her main job is overseeing the development of what will be the Walnut Lane Apartments. So the project will be built out in three phases in order to meet the city's goal of not displacing any of the current residents. So the first phase will be eight units. This is the first time Moab City is acting as developer for its own affordable housing project. They want 80 units of multifamily housing, which would more than double the current density available with the trailer park and be restricted to the local workforce. So I think the fact that the city purchased such a prime piece of land within downtown that will be like permanently restricted for people Mm -hmm. that live and work here, I think that's huge. But general enthusiasm for this project has waned lately. It's been exactly three years since Moab City purchased the trailer park. They were finally supposed to break ground on phase one of the apartments this summer, but instead terminated their contract with their builder after the company couldn't meet the performance bond requirements. After this setback, some city council members suggested cutting their losses and replacing the old trailers with new ones. Others are still pushing for a longer-term solution. Myers projects the Moab area will need 700 more units of housing by 2030 across a variety of incomes. We do need the density. Like We want a, an opportunity to provide more housing for residents that need it, and the only way to do that is to build multifamily housing. Rosa says she's looked for other places for her family to live in Moab. But there's nothing available right now at a price she can afford. Moab City, meanwhile, is hoping to get a new builder in place by the end of the year and break ground on phase one next summer. Rosa says she'll stay put for now and wait for the new apartments. I have faith in God that they will build and that I will benefit from them because my kids and myself need them. And so I stopped getting wet in my bedroom. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Molly Marcello. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for partly cloudy skies tonight with a low in the mid-30s. 
Tuesday should see increasing clouds with a high around 50 degrees. Winds could gust as high as 25 miles per hour. Tuesday night, expect mostly cloudy skies with a low around 25. Wednesday calls for sunny skies during the day and mostly clear skies at night with a high in the mid-40s and a low around 25 degrees. This has been the news for Monday, November 15th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.